Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey guys, before I share this next conversation, I just wanted to say thank you to all of you who have continued to support the podcast with your monthly donations. And for anyone who also wants to support it, it's really easy. All you do is go to littleknownfactspodcast.com and you'll see that there's a contributions page when you look at the homepage menu and it explains how to donate. And when I say no donation is too small, I really mean it. Even a dollar a month will make a huge difference in my being able to share these episodes with you every week. So thank you to those who have already given. Thank you in advance to those who might contribute in the future. And without further ado, here's the next episode of Little Known Facts. Enjoy. Little known fact about my guest today, when he was just nine years old, his mother brought him to New York City and they saw the Broadway musical Oliver And he got to go backstage and meet Georgia Brown. Can you imagine? Welcome the extraordinary Tony-nominated actor Stephen Bogardis to the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. So where are you right now? We're all in quarantine and and, uh, handling it in different ways. So I just want to start with like, where are you and how are you doing? Uh, I am doing very well. Thank you for asking. Uh, I'm on the Upper West Side. I I live um, a stone's throw from Central Park at 96th Street. I'm here with my wife, Dana, and my son, Jackson. And uh, we're hunkered down, spending, you know, probably 23 hours a day in the apartment. And we'll uh, tootle down the street to uh, buy groceries and we'll walk in the park. Uh, The reservoir is, is just you know, I'm, I'm, I'm right where the reservoir is. So I will oftentimes take a trip around on the bridal path there, uh, sometimes running and sometimes just walking. It's been a treat to see, um, spring bloom in the, in the park because I've never gone there so frequently as I have during this pandemic. I mean, albeit with a, uh, with the proper protections, but, um, and are you feeling like when you walk through central park, Um, that people are adhering to the social distancing laws? And and do you feel like generally that everyone's on the same page? I think the majority, the vast majority are, but I would say that there are at least 10% of the people out there who are not as uh, religious about uh, the social distancing as they might be able to be. So... um, that exists and you see some people running and you do see some people walking without, um, without, uh, having their, uh, mouths protected. But, um, you know, I just take a wide berth when I, <laughs> when yeah, we pass yeah. each other. That's a good idea. Where were, so when the shutdown happened, were you in New York? Were you in a production? What, what was going on in your life? I was not in a production. I was in New York. Um, I had a production that uh, I was going to be doing down in Houston at Theater Under the Stars. I was going to go do Disney's Newsies. And um, 
and so that obviously fell by the wayside. I um, I was in New York, and I uh, because I uh, am on council at uh, Actors Equity Association. I was very aware of, of because uh, theaters started contacting us in anticipation of the sh- of uh, of COVID, uh, particularly the West Coast theaters, and. Um, I sit on the. Ch- I'm, I'm one of the co-chairs of the LORC committee, and for anyone who doesn't know what LORC is, the um, the League of Resident uh, Theaters throughout the um, uh, throughout the uh, country, and uh, there were a couple of theaters in the Bay Area of um, uh, California that wanted to be able to record their productions because they anticipated that they were going to have to shut down. So I knew in the early part of March that where we were probably headed. Right. That's really interesting because I know, you know, I was doing a play at Manhattan Theater Club and I know that they shot it in its entirety to uh-huh. use later as B-roll, yeah. um, you know, for advertising purposes. And I wondered when I've had some conversations with people about the possibility of MTC, and I'm sure tons of theaters are are wondering the same thing, if something wasn't shot specifically to be shared in the way that things are now being shared, what the union rules are about something like that. And I assume everyone's kind of figuring it out as they go. Uh, We are indeed. And, um, you know, that is the way that theaters are going to stay in touch uh, with their audiences and stay connected. And a lot of theaters have archival tapes and are approaching equity right now to uh, have the means to show those. Um, and uh, we are responding, the union is, with um, um, uh, we are trying, to, we are allowing it under the conditions that, you know, they're, there's a, a gatekeeper in terms of who, you know, so that no, not anyone can, can tap into that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we want to make sure that our members receive some compensation for that. So there are rules about that, that they will be getting some compensation for that. And that uh, the theater too will, will, will have some funding. But, um, you know, the long range outlook is not a, is not a, is not easy. It's um, it's going to be um, there's going to be a lot of pain going forth because we just as as we all know we have the ground shifts every day. We have no idea what's to come when we will when people will feel comfortable uh, going into a theater again, even if uh, the uh, the government um, the, at the federal and state level say it's okay to go in. There will obviously be many restrictions. I think so. It's it's a long haul ahead of us. I know it's so complicated and obviously that's the conversation, whatever genre of work you do, whether it's, you know, film theater or television, everyone is trying to figure out how to reassemble uh, in a profession that's all about community. So I think it's just been the strangest time and particularly baffling for people who just yearn and work always around the idea of connection, right? Like it's just so, and to that end, I want to, um, I want to go back to a time where we could all assemble in theaters and watch the extraordinary Stephen Bogardus perform (laughs) and fill our ears and hearts with like this magic of your voice and your ability to just not sing a song, but tell this story. And I'm just wondering, I also know your sister, uh, Janet, who's also an extraordinary performer in, in, so I know there's two of you already in the same family who have, um, tremendous artistic gifts. I don't know if there are more of you, but I want to like, just go back a little bit to like where you grew up and how you grew up and how you fell in love. You've become really prolific in musical theater, but do all the things. Um, can you talk a little bit about that time and your childhood and where it began? Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, I grew up in uh, Old Greenwich, Connecticut, and uh, my parents, uh, uh, well, I should actually go back because the 
the you know some of the talent and and uh, that I inherited came from my mom. Uh, my mom uh, grew up in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma during the Depression, and uh, uh, it was a hard scrabble life. It was her and her sister, and her parents uh, had enough money to either offer the sisters braces for their teeth to straighten their teeth, or um, they could uh, take ice skating lessons and they took <laughs> skating lessons and uh, my uh, mom's older sister Jean left home um, uh, I think a year before my mom did and went into the ice capades and my mom followed her into the ice capades she was a senior in high school she was um, uh, I think she was 17 years old 16 or 17 years old and she left home and went into the um, ice capades. And back then it was all by train. You traveled around the country by train. You sat in a city for, I don't know, one to four weeks, depending on the size of the city. And uh, you played a season and then you had a couple of months off. And I think you went to Atlantic City and you put on the, you would rehearse the show for the, for the next season and out you would go. And um, my mom was uh, playing in uh, Los Angeles and my dad was uh, uh, was in the uh, Navy between his uh, fresh uh, his senior year in college and, and going off to college and doing a, a one year in the Navy right then. And Wait, senior year in high school. Yes, and then, and then yes I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. No, that's okay. A senior in, in high school. He had graduated and he went into the Navy and they were stationed in San Diego, their ship. And he hitchhiked up to... Um, with a with a another sailor to uh, L.A. and he saw the ice show and he was supposed to have a blind date with another woman in the ice capades and that that connection didn't happen but he did run into my mom backstage who had a bicycle that she traveled with uh, on the train and uh, somebody had uh, stolen her bike and my dad uh, was helping her try to find the bike. And uh, they didn't find it, but he did ask her, would you like to go dancing? And she grabbed a friend, uh, a companion to, to feel safe. Of and, course. and she went off uh, uh, with my dad and my dad, the other sailor that my dad was with and her friend. And they went dancing then that, that night. And that was the beginning of a four-year romance. Uh, my dad ended up going... Uh, the next year uh, to Princeton and and he would he'd spend all those four years whenever he had time off trying to uh, hook up with my mom not hook up in the in the sense that we talk about it now (laughs) but back but back then he literally would just go to the cities he would when he had a, a break or the summer he would follow my mom to the cities and they did that for four years until he graduated in, in 1950 and uh, they got married and uh, moved to Greenwich, Connecticut. So uh, my dad doesn't uh, really have a, uh, I would say it, and my dad can't hold a tune. Uh, my, both my parents are still alive. My dad is now 92 and my mom is 91. My mom uh, continued to uh, skate when, when they moved to New York back in the early uh, to mid-50s. And back then she would do, um, she would do, uh, 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 what, what would you call them? Um, instead of uh, doing the trade, the, the, um, the trade shows, uh, the fashion shows, uh, she would do fashion shows on ice. So there'd be a stage with just this teeny little, like maybe 10 feet deep by 25 or 35 feet wide. And she would come out and, and have different, you know, uh, dresses and blouses on, and they would do a fashion show on ice. And that's how she made money when she first got to New York. My dad went into the insurance business and stayed there his entire life. Uh, they moved out to the suburbs and, uh, after living in, in, um, uh, on the Lower East Side for about the first two or three years, they moved out to Old Greenwich, Connecticut, and uh, lived out there and raised their family. And uh, I uh, had a very good boy soprano voice. 
Mm-hmm. And um, it was just a naturally good voice. Um, but again, my dad couldn't hold a tune, and my mom sang, but you know, she wasn't. She didn't have a uh, a background in singing. Her background was in 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 dance, uh, and that's what she continued. She when she got out of the ice capade, she continued to dance and to choreograph shows in the in the local high school and. Uh, elementary schools and stuff and take dance classes, modern dance classes in, uh, in New York. Um, I just walked into the third grade, uh, and wanted to be in the chorus. And then in the fourth grade, uh, a man came in and started playing the violin in the front of our class, asking anybody that they want to play. And I ran home to my folks and I said, I want to play the violin. And they said, really? And I said, yes, I really want to play the violin. And they bought me a violin. And I started taking lessons at the school with that man. And then they realized that I was a fairly gifted violinist. And they found somebody who was a professional violinist. And I started taking lessons with him. And that began a, a five-year, four, four, five, six, six years. I studied uh, violin and played in youth orchestras. And I was an accomplished violinist, but like anything, it was never going to be something that I was going to excel at at, at the professional level. So um, I ultimately... How did you know that? <sighs> you know, as a singer, I knew I was really gifted. Because, and, 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 and the violin really helped train my ear. I mean, the fact that you don't have frets on a violin, that it has to be, you know, the exact placement. I just had a really good ear and, um, and I had a really good singing voice. I, um, I don't know. I just, I knew that singing was something that I could do the rest of my life if I chose to. But I'm not one of the, you know, I have to tell you, I am not one of those people who knew when they were seven or eight or nine or 10 years old that they were going to become an actor or that that, that, that was their dream. Um, I ended up, you know, I, I had a lot of privileges, you know, and, and maybe I would even characterize it as, as white privilege. Um, where I grew up, um, uh, my parent, my dad, I, I said, worked in the uh, insurance industry, and he just worked as a salesman and 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 worked his way up the corporate ladder. And you know, uh, forty years later, he was he was the chairman and CEO of the company that that he worked for. Um, we lived in a uh, in Old Greenwich in a very modest uh, uh, home, uh, which was built for the uh, in uh, those little uh, Cape Cod you know, two, three bedroom homes that, uh, were sort of cardboard cutouts in the neighborhood and were built for the, the GIs returning from the second world war. And then we moved, uh, you know, sort of into a, a slightly nicer neighborhood, which, which is where I ultimately uh, grew up, but we didn't live in the fancy part of town. And I didn't think that we were fancy, but my dad had enough money to send me to a boarding school and uh, when I was in ninth grade, I went off to boarding school to, uh, back then it was the Choate School. Now it's Choate Rosemary Hall. And um, Did you want to go to boarding school? Was that a tradition in his family? Or were you a new generation of Bogartises doing boarding school? No, I wasn't a new generation. You know, his dad didn't go to school. His dad was a self-taught man. And you know, worked as an errand boy, and he himself became the chairman of a, a completely different insurance uh, company. Um, and uh, he sent my dad to uh, a boarding school, Pomfret, in Connecticut, Pomfret, Connecticut. And my older brother went to Pomfret also. So I knew probably that my dad thought that, you know, my dad's experience is that that's what that was a difference in his life that set him on a path that 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 worked for him so he was 
just passing that on and thinking that that would be good for his children. You know, I didn't know at the time whether it was a good thing or a bad thing, but I didn't resist going to boarding school. Um, you know, I think had I stayed home, I would have I would have done <laughs> maybe just as fine as having gone off to boarding school. But once you go off on your path, it is your path, and those relationships you make are uh, in school. Many of them are last a lifetime, as have my relation some of my relationships from boarding school so you um, had you liked it yeah i didn't not like it i'm mm-hmm. a, i'm a, i'm a guy who i'm a guy that tries to make the best of what's in front of me and and is not uh, doesn't uh try to rebel and uh i try to um I just try to embrace it. And I, I embraced boarding school because that was, I, I knew that was going to be my life. And, um, I had, uh, for the next four years, I mean, unless I just hated it and then I could have told my dad, I hate it, but I didn't. I, um, um, I continued to play the violin there. I played in the school orchestra my first year. I played in something called the Telemann society, which was Baroque music that, that, uh, was played there in small group. I um, um, I sang. Were you in athletic? A, I beg your pardon. Were you athletic? Yes, I was. I was athletic. I was one of those mass. Uh, uh, I was a jack of all trades when it came to uh, to athletics, but maybe a master of none. But um, I did. I I I I was a pipsqueak. Uh, I I reached puberty late, and I was this little little tiny guy who played football in my freshman year, only my freshman year. And that was the end of that. And then the next year I started running cross country and, uh, you know, I ultimately was the, uh, captain of the cross country team in my senior year. And I also played, um, I played some basketball the first couple of years, but then I, uh, uh, we started playing volleyball. We were one of the first Eastern schools to start playing volleyball in um, in the, uh, in the mid seventies and, uh, sorry, the right around 1970. And, uh, we had a really, really terrific volleyball team. And, uh, you know, we went to the nationals, the Eastern nationals. I think we came in third place. And, uh, uh, so volleyball became very important to me. I ultimately, um, went to Princeton and I did play uh, varsity volleyball at, at Princeton for a couple of years, but I did not run at Princeton because you had athletes that were far better runners than I was. So were you doing theater also in high school? Uh, we had, we had a summer theater um, that played in uh, our, uh, at Eastern junior high school in Riverside, Connecticut. And I did, do a chorus job back then. And there was a guy who was, uh, uh, we did uh, the music man. And I remember I was just one of the kids in the music man, but there was a, a guy there who, um, was, uh, I think a freshman at Vanderbilt or something, <clears throat> excuse me for clearing my throat. And he, um, he knew how to do old age makeup. So he taught me how to do old age makeup. <laughs> so I became, you know, what, a, a 15 year old, old, you know, old man in, in the show, you know, doing uh-huh. this old age makeup, which was just hysterical, but it's something I became very good at. And, uh, I would, you know, for Halloween and when I was in college and stuff, I would often make myself into an old man using cotton, you know, and gluing it to my eyebrows. And I'd use calamine lotion to do highlights and stuff. And then it would sort of dry on your skin and give you that kind of crusty look. And uh, I knew how to do the the shadowing and the deep set eyes and the hollow cheeks and and whatnot. And uh, that became a a favorite pastime of mine. I mean, I almost think that's what drew me to... uh, to, to, to theater was being able to do that. I don't know why I'm laughing so hard, but I'm thinking of like that Pepto-Bismol pink that like calamine o- lotion. You got is. it. That's what it was. It that's what it was. And then Imagine uh, yeah. it was like 
crushed it on your face and like, I really like this. I really yeah. like this. <laughs> and that, my friends, is why he became wizard. Yeah. It all makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? At at, at Choate in my in my fre- in my junior year, um, the drama society there uh, f- did a musical for the first time, and they didn't have enough guys to do the musicals, and they were doing uh, the boyfriend, and so they recruited me. They knew I was a singer, and they needed some singers, and they said, "Hey, will you play uh, Bobby Van Heusen, the guy that sings Won't You Charleston with me?" that Tommy Toon, I think, played in the in the movie, um, the Twiggy movie. And uh, I said, sure. And uh, I wanted to try something new. And there was that moment of applause. The first time I did, uh, I went out on stage and I did that number. And it's, you know, how easy it is at high school to get whoops and hollers from, from your classmates. And right. they they sort of went nuts and I went like, I had one of those moments like, oh, this feels good. This, this feedback you get from a live audience, you know, unlike, I mean, obviously orchestra, orchestral playing um, uh, has its appreciation from its audience too, but not quite to the extent that I was experiencing as a junior in high school. And that was the first inkling that, hey, I kind of like this and I'd like to continue with it. But when I ended up going to Princeton and I tried, I auditioned for what uh, their undergraduate um, theater group, the Triangle Club, I, I, I didn't get selected. I, I, I wasn't brought into the group. And um, they would write their own shows, much like uh, Hasty Pudding does up at, at Harvard and Wigan. Sure. Cleo does down at uh, uh, Penn, and um, and so I joined an a cappella group, and it was uh, and I stayed with that a cappella group, the Princeton Nassoons, for four years, and that was you know that had its own showmanship uh, 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 attached to it, you know, going out in front of a group and and announcing uh, the, what you were going to sing and and interacting with your audience and whatnot. Um, and it wasn't until my senior year at, at Princeton that I was sort of recruited back into the Triangle Club and, uh, and I had a, a starring role in, um, in that production. And it was, it wasn't until my senior year at Princeton that I said that I called my parents in the spring and I said, you know, um, I'm going to, um, I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to see whether I can, uh, carve out a career uh, as an actor. I, I I realize I love performing. I realize right now that my uh, what you know what do I have that I can sell? Well, it's probably my singing voice. And um, so I ended up having my dad secretary go down to the um, newspaper booths and every week as a favor to me, she would buy a backstage and she would send it to me down at Princeton. And then I would look and see whether or not um, there was anything in that spring of uh, 1976 that I could come in and audition for. And lo and behold, you know, I got a job and uh, up at a theater by the sea in Matunic, Rhode Island, which is an equity, a union house right now. But back then it, it was, it was not an equity house. And uh, I graduated from school on a Tuesday uh, in early June. And on Wednesday, I was um, on a train up to uh, uh, West King- or, uh, Kingston, West Kingston, uh, Rhode Island, and was picked up and was uh, promptly doing my first year of summer stock. And then really my, my, my big break came in 1978. <clears throat> I was, um, uh, I just, you know, I had a sort of, connection with actually a connection that I had with a a woman who went to Rosemary Hall. Um, She introduced me um, uh, to uh, Doug Hughes, the director, Douglas Hughes, uh, who had uh, recently graduated from Harvard and, um, and his friend, Mark O'Donnell. And they were, had an idea to go down to the Spoleto Festival 
and uh, put on a, a, a review. And so it was just, you know, it was just a bunch of young kids being in the right place at the right time and, and meeting each other. And so I joined this little troop of players and we went down to the Spoleto Festival that spring. And um, it, it, it turned out that uh, uh, we were there in the summer. Uh, it was late spring, early summer. We were down there watching the Tony Awards, and Doug's dad, Barnard Hughes, Barney Hughes, uh, won the uh, the uh, best actor role in a uh, in a play for Da, and that was just incredibly exciting because here was uh, his dad and mom, Helen Stenborg, and, and Barney Hughes were people that I knew that I'd been in their house and rubbed shoulders with, and they were just regular Upper West Siders. Who lived over on West End and like 92nd Street or something, and they had this beautiful, you know, Upper West Side, uh, you know, old pre-war apartment. And I knew, you know, and we were just kids out of out of college, and we were putting on a show, and we ended up doing putting that uh, doing that as an equity show. And so I had actually bought my way into equity by buying my way into into Aftra, and and I had done some. I had done an under five on one of the soap operas and that allowed me to join equity. So I did join equity and then that was my actual first equity show. But, uh, one of the, um, one of the, uh, our, our, our music director was, uh, a gentleman named, um, uh, Jonathan Sheffer and Jonathan had gone to school with, uh, Jamie Bernstein. And he was friendly with the Bernstein family. And um, that was around the time that they were thinking about doing the revival of West Side Story. And he got, uh, he was uh, taken on as an assistant um, to the casting director uh, for that uh, production. And he said, you know, you should go, you should come up to New York and audition for West Side Story. And I went up there and I auditioned and I, it turned out that, that, that the show was not going to go that year, that it was, it was too early. It, it didn't happen, but I came to the attention of, uh, uh, of, of, uh, John Malcheri, uh, who, who is a conductor and, uh, and a protege of, of Leonard Bernstein's. And also happening that summer, Leonard Bernstein was turning 60 years old, and there was going to be a big gala down at Wolf Trap Farm in uh, Northern Virginia. And they were looking for somebody who would sing some of the Tony material and maybe some of the Candide material. And I went up and auditioned for him, and I was hired to sing Something's Coming uh, from Westside to do the um, balcony duet of tonight with, uh, Josie de Guzman, who was the woman who ultimately played Maria in that revival and, uh, to sing, uh, make our garden grow as Candide with the opera singer, um, um, uh, uh, mm, I forget her first name, uh, Rolanda is her last name. That's terrible. Um, and, that was pretty cool because not only was it at Wolf Trap Farm where there were five or 6,000 people up on the hillside and underneath the shed, but it was telecast live uh, on PBS around the country. And um, that began um, an association with the maestro, um, a friendship with his three children, and me doing... Uh, uh, ultimately understudying uh, Tony uh, in the 1980 revival of West Side Story, which was my Broadway debut, but also continuing to do works um, with, uh, uh, with Leonard Bernstein. Um, and um, that was a catalyst that got me an agent that got me, you know, that was sort of my feather in the cap being in the right place, sort of at the right time. Uh, you know, serendipitous, serendipitous for sure. I mean, what can you, I mean, I'm sure there are volumes that you could write about Leonard Bernstein and your time with him, but are there some stories that come to mind? 
that you can share, like takeaways that you still think about? Uh, well, gosh, Lenny, you know, anybody that has been around Leonard Bernstein knows just what a, a beacon he is of, of light and energy and uh, you know, he was just sort of always on, um, when you were around him, but then, you know, I was, I was, a, I was there, um, and I saw him when, when he was, um, when he was just a dad, when he was, you know, he had insomnia, he had difficulty sleeping, he could be grumpy too, but, um, he was, uh, he always championed young people. And he always had something uh, positive to say uh, about uh, what you had just done. And um, he took people under his wing and and mentored all the time. Um, that was the example that, you know, to this day, I think I have tried to uh, carry on is when I'm in a company and it did it. it, it whether it's now, today, or w even when I was younger, I would always try to reach out to the younger people in the company who were just coming in and uh, reminding them that, it, that as an artist, you are, each and every day, you are, is a learning experience for you. And don't think that it happens all at once, that you're going to be at it for a lifetime and that you have to approach it with a beginner's mind um, every, every single day. There's always something to learn. And um, I, uh, I, I remind the young people that. I say, look, look at each experience as a learning opportunity and then pass that on to the people uh, who are coming behind you because that's, that's the way we do it. And, and then... The thing that I am sure, even though you might correct me and say I'm wrong, but I can't imagine falsetto land uh, and, and falsettos just not being the thing that people want to talk to you about all day and to be at the center of that and to be wizard, like the superhero um, of emotion and all and, and love. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Mar uh, March of the Falsettos, you know, there's a timeline here and, and, and people who know falsettos probably just aren't aware of the, the timeline. March of the falsettos started, uh, in a small, um, maybe 75 seat theater, uh, at what used to be Playwrights Horizons. Um, it then was torn down and theater row was put up and their, their present space is very different than what it was back then. Um, it was on the second floor. Their main theater was on the, on the floor below. Um, I think Christine Baranski and, and Randy Graff were doing um, coming attractions at that time yeah. in, the, in the big theater downstairs. And we were up in the studio upstairs. I got a phone call from my agent at the time. Um, and I was with, I think, Fifi Oscar Agency. And they just said, uh, there's a show happening at Playwrights Horizons. It's a musical. They just go over there. They're seeing people between, you know, one and two. They've just lost an actor. They're in the middle of rehearsals. Just go over there and, and sing a song. And I got there and they literally, there's just like 10 or 15 guys that they had asked to come in. And, uh, and Billy and, and, uh, Finn and Billy and, uh, and James were in the uh, space. And I said, uh, what do you want to hear? And then Bill says, it was just something loud and, and raucous. And uh, I said, okay. I mean, at that point, I didn't know that the first number was going to be four Jews in a room bitching, which was loud and raucous and people just being crazy and jumping up in the air. <clears throat> and um, I sang uh, Pinball Wizard from, you know, Tommy, Tommy's The Who, you know, The Who's Tommy. And... Uh, and I left and I got a call an hour later saying, okay, you're hired. And I went, wow. I mean, 
that's pretty cool. I mean, I went in there and sang one song, sort of screeched it at the top of my lungs, and I got a job off of that. Um, the cast was had already been week, working for a week. It turns out that um, the the role, the person that I was replacing, had been at one point uh, Bill's partner, and that he actually was Wizard, so to speak. At least, if 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 any of this was autobiographical uh, in some manner, uh, you would think that the Marvin character may have represented things about bill but wizard was you know his, his lover and his partner so um and yes i'm a i i was uh, yeah, i yeah. So they break up and that's why the like so well they so they did break up right and so he was playing and they were friends then because bill was 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 with his bill was no they weren't they weren't together any longer right and uh but he hired him to play wizard because they were they were they were still good friends and and he went off because he uh, a day in hollywood in the night in ukraine was uh, had re- he had gone over and auditioned at the spur of the moment for tommy toon to go in and and do a replacement over there and he was told okay you're starting work tomorrow and so he told them all right i'm leaving i'm leaving march of the falsettos and then march of the falsettos said well okay you know lapine had to find somebody to take his place and in and in, in when I you know got it I got went it, in it. so that's how you know crazy this stuff works sometimes that's why you snuck in there yeah 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 so look you know what this whole the show wasn't completely written uh there were little holes in it and 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 I didn't know what the heck I was getting myself into, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I was a straight guy back then. And uh, um, did the cast connect with each other right away? Yeah, yeah, I think we all did. I think I, I think we did. Uh, you know, Chip was a, a Zion was a longtime friend of, of Bill's and had played Marvin in the previous uh, iteration of the, the Marvin musicals when he was uh, Marvin in, in trousers, and that right. was that was very different, also. Uh, I just, uh, and, and Lapine was just trying to stitch together these, uh, these sort of disparate songs and relationships that Bill was trying to, that was throwing out that was just coming out of his mouth. And, uh, so a lot of this stuff, we just go up to Bill's, Bill would be working uptown, uh, in his apartment on 98th street and Broadway. And we just go up there and he would have lyrics and he'd have Michael Sterabin, the music director there who would put chords, you know, who would, you know, Bill would play some chords and, and sing along just loudly. And you'd go up there and then Sterabin would try to write the music, uh, and you would follow along with the lyrics and, do the best you could with the, the melody that was being, you know, we were, what did we have back then? The Walkman? Did we have Walkmans back then? Is that what we used? I mean, that was I like, so, it was like state of the art. On. Yeah. Yeah. It was like state of the art to have a Walkman uh, you sure. know, that you could that you, a cassette tape player that you could travel with. Um, and we put that thing up having no idea. I remember inviting a friend to one of the first previews. I said, I'm in this thing. I have no effing idea what it is. I can't tell whether it's going to be the worst thing in the world, the greatest thing in the world, or something in between. And she's, it was, she was my senior partner, uh, Susanna Fraser. Uh, we were down at HB Studio. And she said, oh, this is, this is very interesting. Mm-hmm. She says, this, this, is, this is very interesting. She says, I, I, I kind of liked it. I, I thought it was really cool. And, uh, and then, you know, uh, it just, it, we filled that theater up every day. Um, we got this killer review, uh, from Frank Rich in the New York times, our he little show, it. and he got it completely. And, uh, that's when it became, um, something, um, uh, and, you know, it started to become something important. I mean, did we know that it was going to stand the test of time? That it would that Bill was going to write a sequel? Not then, not nineteen not nineteen eighty one. Right. You know, I had uh, that, you know nineteen eighty one. That those were crazy times. There was you know everything was everybody did everything. Everybody did every kind of drug. Everybody slept with everybody. You know, it was a 
it was uh, a pretty free and easy time back then. And, uh, and uh, that show became a real cult hit, needless to say. And it moved and, and it moved to the West side arts and I didn't go with it then because that was when I was asked to go to, um, uh, uh, to do the, uh, uh, the production of West Side Story in, um, in, in, uh, Paris. Uh, and then, um, also that, that I had, I had done a workshop, uh, that spring right before I did, um, right before I, 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 I was asked to do, um, uh, sorry, March of the Falsettos. I had been doing a workshop with uh, Michael Bennett downtown uh, of Dream Girls. Uh, I was brought in at the very end of their workshop uh, when they were doing the produ- uh, the uh, they were doing the show for uh, the Schuberts and and their big uh, their big money people, their backers audition, and I uh, was. Uh, I had, uh, my, uh, Michael Bennett and I knew each other because I had previously done a workshop of a show called Battle of the Giants that had music by Alan Menken and, and, uh, Tom O'Horgan had directed and Michael had, had produced. And he had me, he said, just come in and do the, you know, you're a white guy and you're going to, you're going to do, got me a Cadillac car, you know, and you're going to, you know, fill in. And there were was another white, uh, older white guy, Steve Bookfor, who came in and, and did some of those roles. And then it was like all the original people who, you know, ended up doing it. Um, except they lost Jennifer Holliday. She had, uh, she had sort of butt heads with, uh, uh, Michael. And at the last second she left and Elena Reed came in and, uh, ended up, uh, doing the backers auditions. Um, and Michael at that point was in that summer was up in Boston doing the show and had, and, and had asked me to, to please, you know, come and do dream girls. And I said, I've, I'm, I'm in this like show that's getting a lot of attention and it looks like it's going to move to, you know, might have commercial possibilities. And I think that this is just a better show. It shows me off. It's, um, I don't really have anything to do in your show and you know how much I love you and, and, and would like to do it. And it was paying me, it would have paid me, you know, 10 times as much money as I was making off Broadway. We were, we were making $77 in, or no, we were making $92 uh, for eight performances a week. And uh, so I told Michael, no. And then he came back and he asked me again when they moved to Broadway and I said, no, again, um, it's not a, uh, I don't regret not doing the show because I was doing other things that, that took me on a, on a different, uh, on a different path, uh, namely falsettos. And, uh, I'm, I'm only sorry that, that Michael passed away so young in his life because, um, uh, he was a remarkable creative energy and I loved being in the room with him. And, right. uh, you know, I always thought, oh, this is this is a guy who gets me. This is a guy who's going to continue to want to put me in in his shows. And he did. And, he, you know, he, he would call me from time to time. So um, I certainly miss him being taken away during the AIDS crisis. Um, but anyway, so I don't know what were you, do you want me to continue? I mean, like that we then hopped to 1990. I mean, almost in terms of, you know, what happened with uh, when when Billy finally got around to writing uh, falsetto land um which was a separate it was just a, a sequel to march of the falsettos we did a bunch of workshops in the late 80s by that time we had all lost incredibly dear friends we knew how the disease was ravaging the gay community uh we were shocked and 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 just left uh, bereaved uh, at at all the friends that we had lost. And Billy wrote this show. He didn't have it all. He had maybe half of what became Falsetto Lamb, but it was so powerful and so potent that when we started doing some of the songs, we just were like, whoa. We knew this was something that was going to be um 
just resonate in a way that uh, I mean, because we would be, you know, we would be have tears that running right. down our eyes in rehearsal. Do you but remember it, the first time you heard Four Unlikely Lovers and how that came together, <laughs> which remains one of the most, I mean, yeah. listen, I can't speak for you, but is it as incredible to sing it as it is to listen to it? Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's just one of the most remarkable numbers that four people can ever sing together. I don't, I mean, I would, I, I mean, you could just pick up the music and with three other people and sing it and be very moved, but to, um, you know, in, in falsetto land, we added two new characters. We added, um, um, well, when we did it, um, at the, at playwrights, it was Janet Metz and, uh, Heather McRae. And then Janet wasn't available, uh, when we ultimately moved to Broadway. So it, it became Carol Lee Carmelo taking her spot. But in 1990, it was Janet Metz and, and, and Heather McRae and Michael and me singing that song. And uh, I don't know. It, 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 it's like, I don't know. To me, it, it's sort of like, it's like one of those sort of amazing grace moments. You know, when you hear someone sing sing amazing grace just in a in a church or something and in the theater that song uh just the harmonies and the the way it would swell and and the way we would just where we would take our breaths and and uh the voices that would trade off and 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 the fact that it was a play it was a play it was a scene it was a whole scene that took place in the hospital um, and just encompassed all the the love and the pain and the heartache of the of the of of human existence and being scared and but at the end of the day just wrapping ourselves in love that that was that's the choice we had. And that's what we would take with us. Um, yeah, that, <clears throat> excuse me. Whew, uh, that song is, um, well, that song is bringing me to tears just thinking about it right now. I'm sorry. Um, anyhow, uh, that was just, yeah, super special. And again, you know, in 1990, we didn't have, Billy didn't have it completely written. Um, in the 80s, Lapine and I had started playing racquetball together, just a friendly game of racquetball, although it was never so friendly. James, <laughs> always, James always wanted to beat me on the racquetball court, and he, uh, he belonged to a club down in the, uh, in the village, so we would go play down there. And, um, and you know, Bill didn't, have, Bill didn't know racquetball. We just knew there needed to be a spat, and there needed to be a time when Wizard, you know, when Wizard first had that moment that something wasn't right. Right. And it, which happens in the middle of, of, of a racquetball game where, and early in the, in, in that play, you see him just sort of taunting, uh, uh, Marvin's character, Michael Rupert, because I'm by far the better player and, uh, and very full of bravado and whatnot and conceit. And, then when we play the second time, you know, unbeknownst to me and everybody else, um, I have AIDS and, uh, and it's during that racquetball game that we, um, um, that I trip, uh, that I, that, that moment of incivility, invincibility is, is shattered and, uh, I realized just, you know, that I am sick and that there's something wrong with me and I don't know what it is. Uh, I, um, that was, a, that was those two, those two thing, those, the racquetball, the first racquetball in particular, a lot of the lyrics were fed to, to Bill, not, uh, James and I would, would, would play a racquetball game on paper. And we would both write what we would sort of say, 
Uh-huh. And, and, you know, and, and we would put in terminology that, that Bill didn't have. And he just said, give me the terminology. Tell me, right. tell me how the fuck you play this game. And uh, so we'd throw this stuff on paper and we'd hand it to Billy. And then Billy ended up you know, writing, uh, using that as a guide to, to write the racquetball games. Um, and, um, and there were a lot of holes, you know, the way it would work is that you, because James had a writing credit on, on, on the second piece, uh, they would, um, he would have, a, a three by five index cards and, and the name of the song, and he would put them in a, on a grid and we're going, okay, we got from this to this song and that to that song, but how do we get from that song to that song? There's something missing there. And, um, we would talk about what, what kind of scene might go there. Billy would bring in ideas, go home and, and, and write while we were away. And, uh, you know, I have all, I have a lot of that stuff on tape. I have a lot of the different renditions of the script that we did in my files. Um, it's, it, it's remarkable how it all came together and, and where we ended with it. Um, I, you never know. I, you just don't know when you start something, how you get to the end and what were the little pieces that, that, of the jigsaw that, that made it a whole, because it's like any jigsaw puzzle. It's not done until that final piece is in there. And it may be, it may just be the sky, just blue sky and you're, and not have a figure in it at all. Um, but it completes the piece. And, um, when we did falsetto land, uh, that's when, that's when people would come to the show and just be many people immovable objects at the end of the show. They would just, they would just be glued in their seats. I mean, what was it like just hearing, you know, thousands of people sobbing, like sobbing. I mean, it had to be audible and intense and, what is it to receive that? Yeah. Well, I don't know how, you know, what it would, it, it might be audible at the end, but while we were singing, obviously we, we were, when we were doing those kind of numbers, we would, I don't know that we were absolute, absolutely aware of it, but you mm-hmm. were, you were aware of it at the end and you would, okay. you would hear people stifling uh, cries. And, yeah. And, yeah. And, and then you would, I mean, like when we put the two pieces together and did it at the, at the golden in 1992, <clears throat> you'd come out and, uh, there would still be people left in their seats in the, in the house, uh, you know, 10 minutes later after you'd finished the show and, and gotten out of costume and you were, and you were leaving the theater, um, uh, just, just, embraced holding each other trying to trying to process what they had seen you know trying to process their memories of of their journey with loved ones with friends um yeah as we know it was just so indiscriminate who who had chose to to infect who you know who who survived who who were who who was killed back Mm -hmm. then there was no you know they didn't have the cocktails so it was for all intents and purposes, something that you were going to die from. Right. Um, and you did die from uh, in 1992. Right. And that's true of when we did, uh, when we were doing Terrence's play, A Love, Valor, Compassion, when we first yeah. did that in the fall of 94. I mean, the, the cocktails didn't, you know, that, 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 the cocktails didn't come until like 96 or seven. So we were still, while men were living longer because there were, you know, there were more drugs being pumped out that, that prolonged your life, there was still no magic potion that was going to save your life. And, um, uh, you know, we had the same thing with, 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 we, we had that same, there was that same sort of feeling when, when we did uh, love, valor, compassion too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Stephen, I think a lot about like if I had to, I think if I had to, and this is literally like the meanest 
thing to make someone choose. But I always think if I had to go to a deserted island and I could only take two, it would be falsettos and into the woods. Like I think those Uh, might be two cast recordings if I had to choose. And then if they let me choose one more, it would be company. You know, I could keep going. (laughs) But what, what are yours? Yeah. The lessons, gosh, well, you just, you know what, you did just choose two of them. Uh, I mean, you know, falsettos, the, that score and and into the woods, you know, shows about the human condition, about the frail, you know, our frailties, our our dreams, our hopes, which is what you know. I think what most music, you know, what do we? Why do we go to theater? I mean, I go to theater because I want to be transported in some way. I want to be, oh, you know, not maybe literally lifted out of my seat, but I I want to. I want to be brought someplace. I don't want to be lectured. I want to find my way there. I want it, I want it to happen almost without me even knowing it's happening. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you have this aha moment like, whoa, what just happened? Mm-hmm. What just happened to me, right? Um, there are so many gorgeous scores and, and so much. I think what are people's favorites? Some people just listen to it gazillion albums you know i i actually am not one of those people that that listens to a lot of show albums i just never have been but i saw a company on broadway in 1970 uh, i was 16 years old and that show just blew me away right. so, you know watching yeah. larry watching larry kurt sing being alive was like whoa yeah. uh you know watching, it's just extraordinary right yeah. Yeah. Watching, watching Stritch sing, you know, uh, uh, you know, I saw Georgia Brown, uh, do Oliver, uh, at the, at the Mark Hellinger when, in back in 1963 or four, whenever it was, that was, I think, well, maybe the first that and Mary Martin and the sound of music were like the two first shows. My mom, I remember that my mom brought me into New York to, 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 uh, to see, and as a young kid, you know, where is love? Consider yourself. These shows from Oliver, um, you know, as long as he needs me. I mean, I remember those from when I was in the audience, and I, rem- you know, when I was a kid, uh, where, where, you know, where is love? That became that became my audition song when I was a boy soprano. Um, uh, when I first came to New York, um, Never Neverland mm. uh, became uh, a ballad uh, of mine just because of, uh, uh, it's just, you know, you, you know, it's the lyrics, it's the music, it's wherever you were when you first heard it that, that make it so special and that make you hold on to it. And then other, other albums, if you listen to them over time, creep into your consciousness and and depending on where you are in that moment in time what you're going through is it is it a struggle is it is it more you euphoria that you're experiencing at that time every every song will will you know can have a reinterpretation depending on where you are in that moment and that's that's the beauty of well that's the, the beauty of recorded musical theater um and and every time i think of like what are the things that make me feel that way you're in it thank you for your art it has been something that has added so much joy and depth um and nuance to my life as a human being on this planet so i am so grateful for you and this time together and for being on this show. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Ilana. It has been a real joy. It's, um, it's always interesting to tap into your, your history, right. And, wow. and yeah. where, you, where you came from and how you got to where you are today. And I guess I did a little, a little of that, maybe a too, too much of that, but I, I thank you for giving me that opportunity. It's, it's, it's nice to dig deep and, and feel some, the emotion that I felt today.
Hey, before I sign off, I just want to tell you guys one more thing. I have a new podcast out. It's called And the Award Goes To, and you can find it on the Broadway Podcast Network or really anywhere you listen to podcasts. It is an incredible journey that I take with 10 Tony winners where together we listen to their speech that they made the night they won, and then they just take me through their entire Tony experience, how the role came into their lives, what the role meant to them, what the challenges were, how it felt to be nominated, and more unbelievable, how it felt to win, and then what it is to wake up the next day after your lifelong dream has happened. Then what do you do? This 10-part limited series is something that started as a love letter to the Tonys when they were canceled this year and just turned into this whole other adventure. I'm so grateful to my guests, all of whom you love as much as I do. So check out and the award goes to, you're really going to enjoy it. Little Known Facts is edited by Nicholas Klar and recorded in New York City.